Well, good morning, Hallows. Good evening, Hallows Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open uh, to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. You don't have to turn too far. Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. Uh, you don't have to go too deep, just chapter 2. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, know that we have some provided in the pews in front of you to use. You could also grab one on the table in the back. On your way out, let it be our gift to you. But turn open to Genesis, chapter 2, as we continue our study of these first few chapters in the series called Origins. You know, Martin Luther, some of you are familiar with that name, Martin Luther was a Protestant reformer, a catalyst for the Protestant Reformation that occurred in the 16th century. He was also a, a pastor who loved people, and he discipled others in, in very intimate settings. And, and oftentimes, people he was investing in would come to him and ask him questions about faith and life, about the gospel and various things related to journeying through this world. And one day a guy walked up to Martin Luther and was asking him about the relationship between his work and his faith. What is the relationship between his job and his discipleship? How is he to go about working Monday through Saturday uh, as he's spending all of his time in his occupation? How does that impact or is there any uh, relevant connection between what he's doing then and the relationship that he has with his God? And so he says, what do I do? What do, what do I, how do I... How am I to think about my work and my faith? Luther looked at him and says, well, what is your occupation? What do you do? And he said, well, I'm a, I'm a shoemaker. And then Luther looked at him and said, well, then make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. He didn't tell him to go and make Christian shoes, right? He didn't tell him to go take Romans 10, verse 15, about uh, the God taking the gospel, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He, he didn't say you have to put that on the soles of your shoes in order for it to be uh, useful to God in any discernible way. He said, no, go make good shoes. Make a good shoe and offer it at a, at a fair price. He was helping this young man think about the connection between his faith and his work, the, the relationship between his faith in Christ and that which he is producing in his job week in and week out. But also, in his advice to this young man, it might have surprised him because this guy was trying to figure out how does he make his life count and make an impact. And perhaps he was surprised that Luther didn't look at him and say, well, quit your job and become a monk like me. If you really want your life to count, if you really want to be about holy work and productive work, then you need to uh, quit the job out there and step into the church. No, Luther did not go in that direction. You see, Luther understood that Serving the Lord outside of the church and inside the so-called secular workplace, whether that occurs in a downtown high-rise or whether that occurs uh, as you were shepherding your four kids at home, he understood that that contribution to this world isn't junior varsity Christianity. And so he refused to entertain any thought that what we do in the church is superior to that which is done outside of the church as it relates to our work. If that was the case, the world would not be in, uh, we wouldn't be making much of an impact on the world because the truth is the vast majority of you spend the vast majority of your time outside of the church. You, find the va you spend the vast majority of your time not surrounded by your missional community. You spend most of your time at your job, in your work, Place. If you just consider the hours on average, let's say each one of you works 40 hours a week for 40 years. Do you realize over the course of your lifetime, you will spend 80,000 hours of your life working? But then if you factor in 
the work that you do in preparation to work. You know, kindergarten through college, if you just factor that in, that's an additional 15,000 hours of your life spent working. That's a lot of time. And so it matters to us whether or not there's a relationship between the work we're doing in the world and our relationship with our God. We need to figure out what the connection is between the two so that the bulk of our lives isn't wasted or we're not missing out on the opportunities to spend the bulk of our lives in productive, God-honoring kinds of ways. And it is this idea, it is this thought that I want to examine as we look into Genesis chapter 2. Because this topic of work is a, is a major theme that is introduced in the Garden of Eden. So we're going to step into Genesis chapter 2 and, and kind of explore some of these dynamics. And as, as we do so, let me uh, just kind of give you a, an update on kind of where we've been up to this point. We've just wrapped up Genesis chapter 1. And if you're familiar with, if you've been journeying with us during that point, we've got a picture of a God who works, right? A God who's creating the universe, who's ordering the universe, who's beautifying the universe. He's at work in Genesis chapter 1. And so all throughout the creation account in that chapter, it's sort of a poetic narrative, uh, given a shot of creation from 50,000 feet high. So you have a picture of a big God creating and working and bringing things to be. But then when you turn the corner and you get into Genesis chapter 2, the perspective shifts, the tone changes. We're no longer focusing in from, on creation from 50,000 feet up. We're actually being brought in close and we're seeing God personally and actively involved in his creation when he forms man from the dust of the earth. So in Genesis chapter 1, you get an image of a really big God, a transcendent God. Genesis chapter 2, you get a picture of a very close God, a personal, imminent God, a God who's involved in creation. And we're kind of signaled, signaled into this aspect of who God is, this personally involved God a couple of ways all throughout Genesis chapter 2. On one hand, you see it in terms of his name. There's a, there's a unique name used in verse 4 that we didn't get in chapter 1. If you look at verse 4 again, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then you're going to see all throughout this chapter 11 times that couplet, Lord God, used in this chapter. Understand that the writer here is doing something very specific. In Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced to God, and the word used there is Elohim. And it's a generic big name, big reference for who God is as the creator. But here in verse 4, next to God, the qualifier, who is the creator? Where he, well, he's the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's the covenant God who redeemed Israel. He's the covenant God who's providentially involved in the history of the universe and in the history of the world and specifically the history of his people, the people of Israel. So you're introduced to his personal name. You have Lord God coupled through here. So that's one way in which we are signaled into this personally involved, this close, creating, redeeming God. But then a second way we're kind of cued into this dynamic, is found in verse 7. It's found in verse 7 when we zoom in on the day God created man in his own image. And we're given this wonderful description of how it happened. Check it out, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. 
that the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground. You got a picture of this artist who's sculpting man with his hands from the dust of the ground. It's a, it's a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of closeness. It's the picture of a God who is working in the formation of man. We're getting an image of a God who engages in manual labor. It's a wonderful picture of him forming man from the dust of the ground. But then look what happens next. After that, he's so close to the nostrils of man that he stoops in and it says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He breathed life into his lungs. And what happened? Man then became a living creature. A living creature formed and animated by this Lord God, by this close, this active, this forming God. And then we're told in verse 8 that this living creature the Lord took and after he, well, in verse 8 it says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Again, he's working in the world. He planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he took this living creature, he placed him in the Garden of Eden. But then you drop down to verse 15 and look what happens. Here's why. This is why the Lord God took the man and put him in Eden, this this garden, this place of paradise. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So he took man and he put him in the garden for a reason. He put him in paradise to be productive. He didn't put Adam in Eden to kick back in a hammock and be leisure all the days of his life. That's not what was going on in Eden. Some of us think, okay, paradise is leisure 24-7. Paradise is relaxing 24-7. But here in Eden, Adam, the first man, was put into the garden not to kick back and relax. He was put He was put in the garden to work it and to keep it. And here's where I want us to zero in on tonight. The fact that God formed man, placed him in Eden to work it and keep it. Understand the dignity of work as we're being cued into in this passage. The word translated work is the word abad. And it's a word that shares the same root for the words throughout the Old Testament translated worship. The way Adam was to worship God in the Garden of Eden, by working. There is an intimate connection between the work he was put in the garden to do and the worship of his life. And at that point, we begin to think about work in a way that is traced back to our origins. Work is designed by God as an expression of worship. That dignifies work. That dignifies that which we do with the time and the space that we are given in this life. So you think about work as an expression of worship. This, the dignity of work. And there's a few ways you kind of see this playing out in Eden. You see it on one that we're kind of cued into this fact that in work... You and I reflect God's image. That when we are working, we have an opportunity to reflect the image of the God who made us, the God who created us. I mean, God is working all through Genesis chapter 1. That was the rhythm, the time frame of Genesis chapter 1, the creation accounts. It's told in the time frame of a seven-day work week, right? And you have six days of God working and creating, and then on the seventh day, Him resting. Then in chapter 2, you see God working again when you're brought into the formation of man. And he's, he's involved. He's working in creation. 
And then he forms this man in his image. And that involves a lot of things, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, part of which is this impulse we have to live productive lives, this desire that we have to work and to contribute. This is all a reflection of the image of God in us. A guy by the name of Philip Jensen was teaching one time and he asked the question rhetorically. He said, if God came into the world, what would he be like? He said, for the ancient Greeks, they might have said, well, he'd be a philosopher king. It's all about philosophy. If the ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But then he comes to this fact. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? He comes into the world as a carpenter as a manual laborer, somebody who works with his hands, somebody who, who, who produces things with the life that he lives. This is the God that created us. This is the God in, whom, in whose image we have been made, this God who creates and sustains, nurtures, and provides. A guy by the name of Timothy Keller wrote a book on this topic called Every Good Endeavor, and I would encourage every disciple, if you come across that book, to read it. It's well worth the read. And in it, he talks about this dynamic. Listen to what he says. He says, work is foundational to our makeup as human beings. In fact, it's so much so that it is one of the few things we can take and we can take in significant doses without harm. Indeed, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six or that work and rest should be balanced evenly. He said, instead, it directs us in the opposite ratio. Leisure and pleasure are great goods, but we can only take so much of them. If you ask people in nursing homes or hospitals how how they are doing, you will often hear that their main regret is that they wish they had something to do, some way to be useful to others. Being created in the image of God, there's this impulse, there's this desire we have to work, to contribute, to reflect his image in the work that we do. But not only do we see work as an expression of worship in that regard, you see it as an expression of worship when we consider that in work, what is it that we do but cultivate God's good creation? We are to cultivate God's good creation in the work that we do. This is what Adam is doing in Eden. He's been created in God's image. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 28, it says, after making... Uh, man and woman, it says that then God blessed them and he told them, now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Get into this creation and produce. Take that which God has put in the created order and rearrange it and organize it and use it for, for good. And so this is what we do in our work. And when you come to the end of Genesis chapter 1, after the crown of God's creation was put in, into the world, God steps back and he says, you know, everything now is very good. But understand that when God declares creation very good in that moment, that doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean that everything in the world is fully realized. It means all the potential for much good to happen is there, but that potential is untapped. It needs to be cultivated, Right? Which is why Adam is put in the Garden of Eden, to cultivate, to bring out the potential of God's good creation. You might think of it this way, and I got permission from my wife to share this with you, uh, so don't think I'm dogging on her. But uh, when she woke up on our wedding day, she was very good. But she would tell you she wasn't perfect. Meaning, she didn't just roll out of the bed and walk down the aisle at her wedding. No, there there was some cultivation that happened before she did that, right? 
She took a shower, she brushed her teeth, she fixed her hair, she put on a dress. There was cultivation. And she came down that aisle and she would say in that moment, or I, I would agree, well, I got to be careful how I say this, I guess. She, she was perfect, right? In my mind, she was perfect before then. Don't get me wrong. But in her mind, she was like, I was, you know, very good perhaps when I woke up, but I was perfect after I was cultivated, so to speak. Well, this is the dynamic as you shift from Genesis chapter 1 and you zero in to Eden in Genesis chapter 2. Everything is very good, but it's not yet fully realized. It's not yet perfect. There's beauty. There's cultivation that needs to happen. And that's what Adam and Eve were going to be doing in Eden together. They were to cultivate God's good creation. That's, that's the work, the type of work that we do. Again, when you think about Keller and his book, Every Good Endeavor, he articulates this dynamic better than anyone I've read up to this point. So listen to what he says about this cultivation. Keller writes, farming takes the physical material of soil and seed and produces food. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into, into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into poignant works of art, in all these things we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing, and we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. So in work, we reflect God's image. That's what we see in Eden. In work, we cultivate God's good creation. That's what we see in Eden. And one more I would add. In work, we then contribute to human flourishing. That as we are doing this, understand that God is working in us and through us. He's involved in what's happening to contribute to human flourishing so that life can grow, so that life can happen, so that life can flourish. This is the goal of work in Eden. This is why Adam would work the ground. This is why Eve would, would keep the garden. Because in that moment, it was, God was expecting them to be fruitful and multiply for more life to fill up. And as they're working and cultivating, they're contributing to human flourishing. Martin Luther, back in the day, again, he was ahead of his time and how he thought about these things. He was quite out of the box and how he was thinking through uh, the relationship between work and faith. And he preached a sermon one time on Psalm 147, verse 13. And that verse reads this. It says, For God strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. And so those are things that God does, right? God is contributing to human flourishing in that way. But then Luther would ask in that sermon, how does God do that? And this is, these are the types of answers given. Well, how does he strengthen the bars of the city? By city planners and architects, by politicians who pass good laws to protect the city. How does God bless our children within our midst? Through the work of teachers and pediatricians. How does God make peace in our borders? by means of good lawyers and policemen? How does he fill us with the finest of wheat? He would say by farmers and factory workers and restaurant owners. Luther would go on to say that our, our professions, our vocations, our jobs, our work are like the masks God wears in caring for the world, in contributing to human flourishing. This dignifies work, doesn't it? 
It infuses work with a perspective that is enriching and enabling and empowering. He would go on to say, you know, every time a disciple prays the, the Lord's Prayer, every time somebody asks, God, would you give me today my daily bread? He says that God gives us our daily bread, but he does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, and the person who prepared our mill. God working in and through our work to contribute to human flourishing. This is the dignity of work that we are seeing in the Garden of Eden. Work was designed by God to be an expression of worship. And that means Adam didn't just worship God in Eden by reading the Bible and praying. He didn't just worship God by avoiding a few bad apples from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He worshiped God as he worked. He worshiped God as he cultivated God's good creation and contributed to human flourishing, or at least that was God's intent for them in Eden. But you and I know that this dignity of work, it doesn't... It's not something we recognize readily, and it's not something our hearts really beat towards in an excited, at an excited pace because we know that our work outside of Eden is quite different, or it seems that our work outside of Eden is different from the work Adam and Eve were expected to do in Eden. And the reason for that is because our relationship with work, our experiences with work, has been distorted by sin. One of the things we've got to think about as we consider this theme is how in chapter 2, verse 4, uh, verse 4 kind of introduces a new unit in the book of Genesis. And this new unit would go all the way into the, to the end of chapter 4. And that means if we're going to understand one portion of this unit, we kind of got to understand it in relation to the whole of this section. And as you move from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4, you, you get to a moment where things change drastically for Adam and Eve. It occurs in Genesis chapter 3, and it is what's referred to as the fall. When Adam and Eve proved to be unfaithful to God in the work that they were supposed to do. They didn't trust God, so they, eat from the, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's when things went sideways. That's when sin distorted humanity's experience with work in this world. So that work now is not, does not easily come to us as an expression of worship. There's a disconnect between our work and our worship, unfortunately. But God would tell Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, uh, to kind of expect that. He says, as a result of the fall, things are going to change in your experience with work in the world. This work that I intended to be fulfilling to your life and satisfying in the sense that you were doing what I designed you to do, this work is now going to get frustrating. This work is now going to be dissatisfying. This work is now going to be hard and difficult and challenging. You see this again if you turn over to in chapter 3 to verse 17. Listen to what God says about work. Now, we're going to look at this text in more detail uh, in, a, in a few weeks. But uh, so, yeah, just keep that in mind as we read this. I can't comment on all of it. It says, and Adam said, and, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
Essentially what God is saying now is this work, although it was designed to be an expression of worship, sin now has come in and our experience with work is now distorted. Our experience with work is now frustrating. And you see these distortions and you see these frustrations popping up in our lives all the time outside of Eden. I'll just give you a few of the distortions to think about and and maybe see where you fit in light of these distortions if one of these is robbing you from the dignity of work. One distortion might be put this way. One distortion might be described as idolatry. And by idolatry, it means that work becomes a God that we serve. I know idolatry isn't a word that we use very often. It's not a common word in our vernacular nowadays. But essentially, when we talk about idolatry, we're saying we're going to look to some aspect of creation to do for us what God wants to do for us. And anything in the created order can be treated and related to in that way, including our jobs, including our work. And so when work is distorted by sin and it becomes an idol, it becomes a God that we serve, all of a sudden we look to our jobs and we look to our work to provide ultimate meaning and deep satisfaction to our souls. So that all of a sudden we start doing all the things that we're doing incessantly. We start offering up sacrifices to the God of work. We begin to give all of our time to this God, all of our energies to this God, in hopes that this God will provide for us, in hope that this God will take care of us, in hope that this God will watch over our lives. And we are treating our jobs and our work looking to our job and our work to do for us what God wants to do for us. We treat work like a God. And the struggle and the distortion of that comes into our lives when we understand that at some point in time, you will inevitably experience this in your life. You will discover that work is a terrible God. Because the one thing you will never hear from that God is to take a Sabbath. You're never going to hear what God told Adam and Eve in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You're never going to hear mercy. You're never going to hear you need to rest. You're never going to hear, yeah, work and rest, work and rest. That's your rhythm. You're just going to hear work, 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 work. There's always more to do. There's always something else to take care of. And it will consume you and it will define you. And ultimately it will destroy you because that God offers no, no rest. That's one distortion of work in our lives, idolatry, when we look to work and we treat work like a God. But then on the other end of that, another distortion that pops up in our lives so often, it, it might not take the form of idolatry for all of us, but it may take the form of idleness. And all of a sudden, in idleness, work is a good that we avoid. Work is supposed to be a good thing for the reasons we mentioned earlier, but we avoid it due to idleness. Now, uh, when I talk about idleness, I'm not talking about anyone who is able to work and they want to work and they're trying to work, but they can't seem to find work. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who are idle in their work. They, that work is a good thing that they avoid doing. And the reason why they avoid is tied to one of two things. On one hand, it's probably tied to laziness. We avoid work. It's a good that we avoid due to our own laziness. And so the ratio of leisure and work is all out of proportion. And the irony of that, when we become lazy in our idleness and we avoid the good that work is, ultimately, all we do is rest, but we never feel rested, right? 
That's the irony. If you're always uh, kicking back and relaxing, if you're always resting, you're never rested. It doesn't happen that way. That's not how God designed us. Remember Keller's words. This is why Keller said what he said. Remember, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly. Instead, it directs us to the opposite ratio. Leisure and pleasure are great goods, but we can only take so much of them. So idleness is another distortion that creeps up into our lives. Seeing work is a good that we avoid due to our laziness. But then others, others perhaps avoid this, this good because they have a hard time seeing the dignity of all kinds of work. And so people sometimes refuse to take jobs that, might, that other people may look down upon. Or they refuse to take a job that they may have the opportunity to take because others don't see it as a, in a high class or in a, a, they don't see much self-exaltation being able to come through that job. And so they see some jobs as just not worth doing. And so they don't see the dignity of all kinds of work. And usually in these types of situations, a person may refuse to take a job unless it's a dream job. But the challenge in that is that if you're only waiting for a dream job, you're just chasing an illusion and you're wasting your days. You're wasting your life because you're not doing anything. You're looking to work to do for you what work was never designed to do for you. Work isn't supposed to provide you with ultimate meaning and deepest satisfaction. So don't look to work to do that for you. You see, any work... Any work in this world, outside of work that's explicitly tied to sin, right? You know, you're not pimping prostitutes or selling drugs. Any work outside of, like, blatantly and explicitly things tied to that which dehumanizes people. Any work is good work, and any work is better than no work. So we, we don't want to see our experience with work distorted by sin because we're not thinking about the dignity of all types of work that we may have the opportunity to do. But then another distortion, it moves from idleness into self-centeredness. All of a sudden, our experience with work in this world is distorted by our own self-centeredness so that now, for some, work is what we do for ourselves. Exhibited A for this is found as you journey through the book of Genesis and you come to Genesis chapter 11, you got the Tower of Babel, and you have a group of people who've come together and they say they want to build a tower all the way up into the heavens. And their motivation is clear. They say it, we're going to build this tower as high as we can get it so that we can make a name for ourselves. It's a very self-centered motivation. They were doing it for themselves and not necessarily uh, for a certain select group of people, not necessarily for all people. And God comes down and he cracks it up, right? He just knocks down the tower and he disperses people. He confuses languages. He says, look, work done in a self-centered way, work done to, for your own glory, so to speak, that type of work is a distortion of the work I designed you to do. So work as being what we do for ourselves is another distortion. If we're only working to provide for us, and I will say later, if we're only working to provide specifically for our families, that may be a distortion of work, and we'll see why here in a moment. But then the fourth distortion, is, it comes across this way. It's a distortion that takes the form of futility. And this distortion means that work for so many of us oftentimes seems pointless. We have a hard time seeing the rhyme or reason to a lot of things that people are working and doing in this world. And we wonder, is there any point to any of the work that we're doing in a fallen world? Does any of it have any redeeming value? 
I got a picture of this when I was 17 years old when uh, <laughs> me and a few of my friends got a hold of a bottle of Jack Daniels. Bad idea. And we got a hold of this bottle, and next thing I know, I'm waking up on my parents' bedroom floor. And it wasn't a good scene. It wasn't a good moment. Something bad happened the night before. Somebody had to call my parents to come and get me and bring me home to take care of me because I was in bad, bad shape. I put too much of that poison into my body, and it, yeah, it wasn't good. And so I wake up the next morning to my dad kicking me. Hey, boy, get up. And I open my eyes. I'm trying to get oriented. I, I'm so disordered. I can't. Everything's spinning. My eyes are blurry. I feel nauseous. I'm sweating. It's just, I'm miserable. And my dad looks at me and says, all right, get up. Follow me. And I kind of climb up as best I can. And I'm just sick as a dog. And I follow my dad outside. And at that time, I lived in Louisiana. And this was the middle of the summertime. And and basically, summertime in Louisiana is hell on earth, right? I was going to hell following my dad as a result of what happened. It was hot and humid, middle of the summer, scorching heat. I walk outside. My dad leads me to this old stack of bricks that had been sitting up against this fence. It had been there as long as we had lived in the house. These bricks served no purpose. Grass was growing up in them. It was just there. It was nothing. And my dad looked at me and says, okay, you're not coming back into my house until you move every single one of these bricks 20 feet down the fence and restack them over there. And I said, Dad, why? He said, no reason, just do it. <laughs> it was an exercise in futility. It was utterly pointless labor. It served no purpose whatsoever. It was just a form of punishment. There was no rhyme, no reason to it. It was just my dad wanting me to spend the day outside under the sun in my condition, feeling miserable. And so many times our experience with work is an experience with so many of us have a perspective that says all work is futile, all work is pointless. And we draw the wrong conclusion about work that says work is simply a punishment for sin in the world. That the only reason we're working is because the world has fallen. But that's not God's design for work. God told Adam and Eve to work the Garden of Eden before sin ever came in. And when sin comes in, yes, it distorts everything, but there's still dignity to be had in work if we learn to think about work properly and we begin to allow the gospel to frame and inform and redeem our perspective on the work that we're doing in this world. And so to do that, how, how do we do that? How do we move through these distortions? How do, we, how do we find some hope for the work that we're doing in this world? Well, we've got to understand as we move from the dignity of work and we move considering the distortions of work, we need to constantly consider the decisive work. The decisive work when God took on flesh, when he identified with the human condition and he entered the world as a Jewish carpenter, born in Bethlehem, raised in a podunk town called Nazareth, and he lived his life working and serving others as he lived his life deferring to his heavenly father and bringing blessing and contributing to flourishing to those around him, doing it as a carpenter, later doing it as a rabbi. We see in Jesus one who worked throughout the duration of his life. And the climax of his work came when? It came when he goes to the cross, right? 
And he gave up his life as a sacrifice of atonement so that our lives might be redeemed. And with our lives comes our work. So when we come to the one who says to us, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's what we're hearing. We're saying we're going to come to this Jesus. He's going to bring rest to our souls. And when he gives us rest, he's going to recalibrate our relationship with work in this world. So we want to consider the decisive work of Christ, which is capable of transforming the work that we do in this world. Let me Let me point out a few ways that this happens. The work of Christ frees us from the distortions of work. It frees us from the distortions of work. Here's how. When we come to Christ and we find rest in him, when we're looking to his decisive work, all of a sudden work is no longer ruling over us. In Christ, we find a new master, don't we? In Christ, we find a new God. In Christ, we find a new ruler. In Christ, we find value. We find identity. We find worth. We find acceptance. All of a sudden, in Christ, God is everything he wants to be for us. And work doesn't have to be. So we don't have to look to work to bring this sense of value to our lives. We've got Christ. So all of a sudden, work is no longer ruling over us in that regard. Not only that, work is no longer something avoided by us. Because when you come to Jesus and you think about who Jesus is, it flips flips the script on all the work you consider to be demeaning. What type of work was Jesus willing to do in the world? What type of work was Jesus doing in the upper room when he got down on his knees, and he washed the feet of his disciples. Do you understand that that work was looked down upon by every Jewish man? It was was an undignified work. It wasn't noble work. It was mocked by every Jewish man in the room. That's why the disciples got super awkward when Jesus started doing it. They were like, I know who you are. You were the God, man. You were the Christ. You were the Messiah. And you're going to wash my feet? And in that moment, all of a sudden, Jesus gives us a perspective on all the type of work that we can and should do in this world. And all of a sudden, it says that no work in this world is too demeaning for us to do. We should be willing to work, not avoid opportunities to serve others and to work in those moments. But not only is work no longer avoided by us, work is no longer centered on us. Our, the work that we do in this world, is, isn't, is it, it isn't all about us. I mean, when you consider how we are saved by the work of a selfless Savior, a selfless Savior, when you consider that reality, you can't help but become more selfless yourself, right? You can't help but con- become more other-oriented in your approach to work when you consider how Jesus in his decisive work was utterly other-oriented. Everything that he did, he did to honor the Father and to help his people. And so it flips the script on the self-centeredness that we often bring into our work. It's not about us. Work no longer centers on us. But then also work is no longer wasted around us. Work is no longer wasted around us, meaning work is no longer considered futile. Work is no longer considered futile because of why we are doing what we are doing. All of our work matters, even the work that nobody sees, even the work that nobody thanks us for. 
C.S. Lewis would give us a picture of this in one of his writings where he talks about explorers going into a valley that as far as they knew, no human eye had ever seen before. And when they go into this valley, they find beautiful flowers in this space and And chances are no eye had ever seen these flowers before, yet they were there for for years before being discovered. And then C.S. Lewis would ask, who did God put those flowers there for? If nobody would ever see them. And then he answers his own question, well, God beautifies some things just for himself, for his own enjoyment. Even our work that nobody sees should still be done as an offering to God. In Christ, we find that our work can be an expression of our worship, and that includes the work nobody sees and nobody thanks us for. Therefore, nothing we do is wasted. Everything that we do is, a, is an offering to God, so to speak. This is why in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul would tell believers, now in light of the gospel, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable as your spiritual act of worship. That means everything about you. Give to God all your work, all your activities. Make it all an offering. You're, the world is now a temple for you to worship in. And your work is an offering you can give to God, not because you're trying to impress him to accept you and to love you, but because you've come to Christ and you're working in light of his work on your behalf. So the work of Christ frees us from the distortions of work. And as a result, it then frees us to flourish in our work. We can flourish in the work that we do in this world. Because all of a sudden, we're free to work for the glory of God. Colossians chapter 3, it's written there in your notes. Whatever you do then, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are working for the glory of God. You are working. You are serving the Lord Christ, not your boss, nobody else in this world. You are doing all that you do for the glory of God. But in that, you are doing all that you do. This work that you're free to do, you're free to do now for the good of other people. You're glorifying God and you're working for the good of those around you. Let me give you a few applications of that, what that means for all of us in this space. If we're going to work for the good of others, that means we must work to provide for our families, right? That means part of the others that we're working for and the good for is the families that we have and the families or the households that we are a part of. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul picks up on this theme and he applies it to the church. He says, guys, I want you to, I want you to care for your families. I want you to provide for your families. And he says, if, if anyone is not caring for members of their own household, if they're not willing to work, Paul would go on to say they are worse than an unbeliever. Because they've been brought into this relationship with a selfless Christ and a, a working Christ, and yet they're unwilling to work themselves. He's saying there's a huge disconnect there. So we want to work for the good of others, and that work starts by providing for our families. But it doesn't just stop there. If our work stopped with simply providing for our families, that can become a distortion of the work that we're designed to do. 
Because the work that we are created to do as a form of worship isn't just for me and it isn't just for my family. So that means when we go to work, we go to work to serve our coworkers and our customers. We recognize the workplace as an opportunity to exert God-honoring influence. And so we want to serve our coworkers. We want to serve our customers. We, we bring a new agenda into the workplace that says, you know, this job isn't about me. It's not just about my comfort. I'm going to do this job in a way that brings flourishing to those around me. That includes those next to me, and that includes those who come to me for my services or my product or whatever the case may be. But then you go one step further. As we're working in that regard, we're working to better our world. This is that other orientation dynamic. We want to better the world that we live in, and we want to work to contribute to human flourishing all around us in the world now. I was talking to a couple of guys through email last week who are members of our Justice and Mercy team, and, and they, they're skilled in coding, and they have a heart for ministries of mercy, and they have a, specifically they have a heart for those who are hurting in our city as it relates to homelessness and other types of needs. And so what did they decide to do? They said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work to better our world by utilizing my skills and competencies to put together so, some software and a system that will help connect hurting people with helpful needs. And so this project is called the Hearth Resource Tool. You might imagine it kind of like 211, that number that you can call to find services and to get help. But this is to be a lot more comprehensive and it's a lot more personal and it's, ultimately it will be a lot more helpful. There's already council, there's a councilwoman in our city who's supportive of it and who's putting her, her power behind it. And there's others in the city who are now advocating for this project. And so other coders are being invited into this moment to better our world through the work that they do to help bring uh, resources to hurting people in the city. That's a God-honoring, other-oriented approach to work. They're not getting paid for it. There's nothing they're benefiting from except for the joy of knowing they're doing what God loves to see done. They are going to help others. They're bettering the world, so to speak. And then that brings us to that last dynamic. We are free to work for the good of others. Therefore, let's work to care for those in need. This is why the work that we do can't just be about me and my family. And it can't be just, just be about you and your family. The work that we do needs to be done in such a way where we can care for those in need. I'll give you, I'll give you a verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, that kind of puts this in perspective. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. The Apostle Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, let him work. Doing honest work, doing honest work, so that he, uh, with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see the motive? Do you see the change? Let him do honest work, not just for him and not just for his family. Let him do honest work so that he can have something to help other people with. It's an other orientation. It's the dignity of work being restored in a former thief's life. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. When we allow the work of Christ to transform our work in this world so that we are now working for the glory of God and we are working for the good of others and we begin to reflect the image of God and we begin to cultivate the goodness of God's creation and we begin to contribute to human flourishing, that is a powerful dynamic. That is an expression of worship that I hope and pray each and every one of us learns to find joy and life in. So when you go to work, 
Maybe some of you are going to work later tonight. I know some of you have to put kids down, and that's work, right? That's bringing order to a chaotic situation. When you go to do that, when you go to do that task, to do that job, when you wake up in the morning to go to work, don't just go to work. Go to worship. Don't worship your work, but worship God through your work. Let's go to worship seven days a week at our jobs, in our gatherings, every moment of every day, offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice to the God who claims us in Christ through his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace now as we consider these truths, as we consider these dynamics, would your Holy Spirit please administer these realities to our souls? I pray, God, if there are some distortions in our experience with work right now, I pray that you would bring them to light so that those distortions may be transformed and so that we might find ourselves coming to the one who says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Give us grace to find rest in this moment so that we might work well and worshiping you through the ways in which we contribute to life in this world. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.